0: We're here with Caitlin Rosenthal, a historian of business practices, and um, she recently wrote a book called Accounting for Slavery, and I'm so glad that it went the places that it went. Um, I feel like some of the biggest problems we have in sustainable agriculture is this narrative that farming used to be good, but then it got all capitalism-y and bad sometime after the World Wars, and... There's a couple things wrong with that narrative, but first, let's uh, let's talk to Dr. Rosenthal. Uh, got a couple questions for you. I guess first is how did you land on this topic of you know where slavery and capitalism come together?
1: So I came to it uh, kind of backwards, which I guess is how you always come to unexpected book projects. Hmm. Um, I had worked as a management consultant for several years before I started graduate school in history, and when I started school, I was interested in studying. Basically, the beginnings of big business. Like, what happens when businesses get really big? How does that change the ways they record information, and especially the ways they quantify uh, their workers? And how does that change relationships between a managers and workers, and employers and workers? And I started graduate school, and I started to look at 19th century account books, focusing on areas that I thought would contain that story about big business. And About a year into my research, uh, an economic historian handed me a copy of Thomas Affleck's Plantation Record and Account book, um, which is uh, used for southern slave plantations which were growing cotton and sugar. And the book was just so much more complex and detailed and um, completely filled out, which is not always the case for many books, uh, (laughs) that I – kind of trained, turned my attention um, from a project that was mostly about free factories to one that was a comparative project about Southern agriculture. And then by the time I finished the dissertation and started on the book, I was writing almost entirely about uh, the business history of slavery, which I thought showed many of the same things that you can see in American business history on a grander scale, but in a setting that nobody expects to be hearing it.
0: Awesome. That's so cool. I think um, that's the thing that will happen sometimes when you start digging into the story of something is you find this World Wild Card document that just changes everything um, <laughs> that nobody really been looking at before. So that that is so cool. That's such a cool story.
1: Um, well, and I should actually say, one thing that's a, that is interesting is that a lot of these documents had been looked at, but they were really looked at by cultural historians of slavery. Okay. So they were people were trying to figure out what enslaved people were eating, um, what their daily life patterns looked like, but nobody had been looking at them who was also looking at business records. So that
0: was the kind of unique twist. Okay. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but my husband's actually a historian of slavery in, in Haiti and Saint-Domingue. So it's funny Oh wow,
1: that's amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of how I got started on this. People would say so what does your husband do? And you tell them and they go oh well you do agriculture. Wow, you guys must not have anything to talk about. False. Labor <laughs> practices. There's a lot of overlap. So yeah. Um, that was always kind of interesting. So as I started working more and more in agriculture, once you, you know, live with a historian of slavery, and then you actually go out and work in agriculture today, there are some things that you see that you cannot unsee. So um, that's been really interesting. And again, I'm just so thrilled that your book um, really kind of went there and kind of drawing lines between current business practices, um, both in and out of agriculture with with a past that we're kind of trying to forget. So I just I appreciate that so much.
1: Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, I didn't think, I don't think I realized how close this past was until I started working on the project. You know, as most people who write about the history of slavery are already historians of slavery, and they already know how important slavery is yeah. to American history. And I sort of knew that, but I didn't really understand how close this history was.
0: Right, yeah, it's, It's. I don't know, I, it's kind of tough to talk about, Um and I'm just came back from a road trip and there's kind of a different mental space that I have to get into to work in agriculture at this point. And so I'm still kind of in that. So it may take me a minute to to make some connections that I'm, I'm wanting to make here, just because I'm still kind of transitioning back to that um, off work mindset. Um, but I think that almost kind of gets at some of the things that you mentioned in your book, which was you kind of had to create this alternate reality for any of this stuff to make sense. And the the ideological control factor was so strong. Um, I don't know just the human systems aspect of it so if you have any any stuff to kind of add on that I guess that would would be kind of cool to hear
1: well I it's interesting when you think about what's new about this book because from one perspective historians of slavery have known that there were pockets of really sophisticated business practices all along Mm -hmm. Um, but there was often a tendency to describe those as um, you know emerging despite slavery or um, pockets of innovation that were um, unusual and not typical or were kind of at odds with the larger system. And I think what really was a turning point for me focusing on slavery specifically was realizing that control over people was a management advantage. Yeah. That the fact that planters had control not over, over work, just over work processes, but over all kinds of aspects of people's lives and that they could threaten enslaved people with violence um, that all these things that we think of as backwards and terrible were actually benefits for the planters.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were reasons that people did this. There, there were um, business logic. You know, there was business logic behind these decisions to enslave people and to keep that system going. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, let's see. Yeah. Um, Something really interesting in your book that also came up in Carrie Lee Merritt's book that she put out, I think, earlier last year was um, there's this popular conception that slave drivers, you know, the people actually put in charge of running these crews were typically poor white people. Um, But both you and she point out that it was actually an upper-class job to be supervising slave crews because, as you mentioned, the main job that they actually had, like, the title was bookkeeper. They were supposed to be there to keep records. And so literacy was key to having this job and poor whites were not allowed to get educated. they could not read, they could not write. There was no public education system, and that was done rather on purpose. So in order to be a slave driver, you had to be an upper class educated person, which is a really different wrinkle, I think, than most folks are, tend to think of.
1: Yeah, so I think there, um, slave drivers, I think were typically either enslaved blacks who mm-hmm. were kind of part of the managerial hierarchy within the plantation and were being, made to surveil each other, or they were um, relatively um, more literate and wealthier. And you have some planters who complain they can't get a... um, James Henry Hammond um, complains that he can't get a literate slave driver... or not a literate one, but someone who can keep good good enough records for him. Right. Um, and Thomas Affleck, the author of this plantation account book, says, writes back, he says, you have to put this in their contract. You want to find someone who can keep these good records for you. So there certainly is a range, but there were a number of people who were relatively um, elite, not elite on the level of, you know, planters who owned hundreds of, hundreds of lives, mm-hmm. but certainly much, much better off than um, many poor white southerners.
0: Right, it was really more of a middle-class and up kind of job than it was, you know, like a... I, I think we think of, like, poor broke redneck doing this job, and that really just wasn't the reality.
1: Yeah, I think there was a whole lot more uh, variation. Uh, with, I mean, if you think about it, it's a... it's a uh, Overseer is a position where you have a huge amount of enslaved people working under them, and you're not only in, in charge of the, prof- the profitability of the plantation from over one year, but also the, like, maintenance of the. This- huge body of human capital yeah like like the planter has huge amounts of wealth invested in people and the uh, overseer is placed in charge of all that yeah what um you mentioned also about education i think that's important as well um one thing that's striking is how networks of planters were able to pursue excellent education for their own children um Mm -hmm. and sort of very high education that the top crust of society, but public education doesn't extend a down into society in the same way that it does in the North.
0: Right. So interesting. Yeah. Something that I noticed again, working with farmers is most of the time, if you have a manager uh, on a farm at this point, um, I think we tend to think of immigrant farm workers from Latin America as being kind of brute force labor. And that's really not the reality. Um, Yes, there is a lot of that, but also the knowledge workers at this point are mostly first or second generation immigrants from Latin America, because that's who has the knowledge base. And um, I, I think that kind of comes up to some extent in your book too. Is um, you know enslaved people weren't just being brought in for manual labor; they were being brought in for knowledge. And you even see this to this day in basically imported farm crews. Um, is their knowledge workers? You know, the knowledge workers come from that population base. They don't come from uh, the upper management class, and and. You know, I think the extent to which the knowledge is brought by management versus middle management versus the um, manual labor crews is it kind of morphs over time. But there's definitely a, a big thread of knowledge coming in from these imported workforces. And um, something that I noticed is on the occasions when you do have like an Anglo American who's learned enough Spanish to occupy this job, if they're a younger person, they've generally kind of. Uh, developed, I think, some more empathy towards their workforce, and they're kind of um, kind of straddling that divide more. If you come across, and you, it doesn't happen very often, but if you come across an older Anglo American who has learned Spanish, and they typically tend to identify with the Anglo management class more, and they are the creepiest people you will ever meet, which is really kind of interesting.
1: <laughs> but, but you know, actually, it's interesting if I think about the West Indian. Um... Context where the plantations are the biggest, and there are the most middle managers. There's like most bookkeepers and managers. Um, there are some comments, mostly made by uh, abolitionists at the time, about the what this work does to people, mm-hmm. um, like the fact that it's a kind of brutalizing job that um, it kind of has an effect. That uh, and there's a, one in particular who's writing about the slave trade. This is one that I quote in the book. It's an abolitionist. He writes, you know, if we get, we send out our young apprentices to, um, you know, keep uh, invoices of human lives, mm-hmm. then they're going to start to think about people as like seals. They're going to be kind of fully taken over by this brutalizing um, kind of outlook. And I think that there is like an awareness that this is doing damage. I mean, of course, it's doing the most damage to the people who are enslaved, but it's also um doing some damage to the
0: people who are working in these positions. Yeah, 100%. And I think there's a lot to be said for, um, I think, descendants of the people like in, in the demographic that was actually owning and trading in slaves to examine what this has done to us. Um, I think communities mm-hmm. that were more directly affected by the slave trade and by land appropriations have been unpacking the effects on their own communities for a very long time. And, you know, I don't think they're the only people affected, um, but we as a demographic tend to kind of deny what it's done to us. And I think it's really important that we kind of start to carry our own water that way and not, you know, um, be in denial about that. So something interesting that I saw once was, I forget the author's name, but he was the premier, um, kind of counselor and rehabilitation person for, uh, men who are committing domestic violence. Um, rehabilitation of those cases is very difficult. He was one of the foremost people who, you know, tries and gets that done. And he said something really interesting. He was like, in most cultures, at least in the U.S., in most demographics, there's domestic abuse of some kind. You know, it's out there. Um, but there's a very distinct Anglo-American strain of it with very different priorities. He said um, there tends to be a lot more uh, thought policing in that genre of domestic abuse. Like uh, in some demographics, there's a tendency to not really care what your victims think or say or do as long as they keep the money or the food or the sex coming Um, but for Anglo-Americans, there's a lot more emphasis on what you're allowed to think and what you're allowed to say, um, and who you're allowed to associate with, which I think is really interesting because it ties kind of into this, you know, you talked about human systems of control and surveillance, and that was really fascinating tie in.
1: Yeah, I think people sort of think that a knowledge economy, um, and information systems go with different types of practices, Mm -hmm. um, but they can go with these extremely brutal, violent, um, uh extractive practices which as you rightfully point out like a lot of this labor is skilled um Mm -hmm. but it's still not the kind of labor that we think goes along with like careful calculation
0: right i Um,
1: mean i didn't realize until working with these records how much um a sophisticated and large farm or plantation is is like a factory um the scheduling of the different processes over the course of the year, figuring out how to strategically plant and rotate the crops, and just the need uh, for labor during especially peak times when you have to be able to command and control labor or else the whole choreography of the year comes to a halt. I mean, in a way, it's like the assembly line pushing forward at every moment, and if you can't, you know, Charlie, you think of, I think of Charlie Chaplin on the assembly line in modern times, and the, <laughs> that assembly line can be shut off Right, But the assembly line from the plantation can't be turned down. The agricultural assembly line always keeps kind of turning relentlessly with the seasons.
0: Right, yeah. And that's something I've actually had a tough time conveying to folks who don't work in agriculture is we have this mythos of, you know, family farming. And you work with the seasons. And it's, for some reason, we really think of agriculture as just being this benevolent existence. Like, we just do. Um.
1: (laughs) It would be so great to rise at 5 a.m. every morning to do backbreaking
0: labor right well and and there's so much in agriculture that is time sensitive and it you can tell people 5 a.m. labor until the cows come home you know but people don't understand that there's time sensitive stuff that has to happen and it doesn't matter what it's doing to your body it still has to happen right um so it's it's really challenging to convey that to folks and they kind of again like this whole factory farming uh idea Um, they call it factory farming because God forbid a farm behave like a factory. I'm like, but they totally do. (laughs) You don't understand. And so again, it's been really fantastic to have a resource like yours that points out that factories actually grew out of agriculture, because I think there's this, the sentiment that treating it like a production machine is unnatural, uh, and gross. And the way it was done with a plantation to the extent of brutalizing people, you know, like kind of really draws that out. But in any kind of labor situation, like again, everything is time sensitive and you really have to coordinate that labor. You don't need to use slavery to do it, but you do need to find some way to coordinate that labor. And that is something that I feel just really doesn't hit home for a lot of folks who are romanticizing agriculture the way they do. That's episode one in a two-parter with Caitlin Rosenthal, author of Accounting for Slavery. This book is all about the business culture that got built by enslaving people and how it bleeds through to business practices in the Americas and Europe today. Thanks for listening to Farm to Taper.